Thanks so much, Annette. I appreciate, that. I appreciate the kind introduction, and it is great to be with so many friends that I see in the audience and saw at the uh, reception. And that's right. My first job uh, on Capitol Hill was as a parking lot attendant uh, in the Senate parking lot. I started out in the upper chamber. And uh, my first job at the RNC, actually, I was a phoner in the basement. I was one of those people who call people at home and bother them for money for the Republican Party, interrupt your dinner. And, uh, I was 21 at the time, and then about uh, 16 years later, uh, I was chairman of the Republican National Committee. I had a big office up on, the, up on the fourth floor, and I would sit up there all day, and I would call people at home and bother them for money for the Republican Party. So it had been a great experience, and what goes around comes around. It is great to be with you this morning here at uh, historic Mount Vernon, uh, which is in my neighborhood. I actually live about uh, less than two miles from here on uh, one of uh, President Washington's uh, farms, and uh, uh, so it was a nice short commute for me, un uh, unusual uh, to have a short commute in the morning, but uh, welcome you here. I want to add to what Jim said in terms of uh, uh, having members of Congress uh, come out here and see Mount Vernon and, and the facilities. I uh, also want to encourage folks who are here, the, some of the sponsors uh, uh, who are in the offices of, of uh, some of the companies and trade associations, uh, to also consider coming out here for uh, retreats. And uh, it's a fantastic facility to do that. I was here uh, with President Bush when he met with uh, President Sarkozy and uh, here at Mount Vernon. Uh, and they had a conference here with their top economic advisors and leaders uh, together. It was a fantastic setting for a conference. And I would encourage all of you to consider and, and uh, get some information about uh, taking advantage of these facilities. And if you can imagine your company or your trade association having a uh, a conference here on leadership, having someone come in and talk about the leadership lessons of George Washington, uh, and then capping it all off with a uh, little reception uh, on the porch of uh, Mount Vernon. That's not a bad deal. So there's your commercial uh, for, for uh, Mount Vernon, and now I'll go to uh, some discussion of the topic at hand, politics and policy. Uh, obviously, we're celebrating uh, here at Mount Vernon the, the life and times of uh, a great president. Tomorrow, we celebrate the 100th birthday. Uh, of a great president, President Ronald Reagan. Uh, we also celebrate in this year, especially here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, the 150th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War. Began just one county away uh, from, from where we stand now uh, in Manassas, and, and uh, that brings to mind, obviously, another great president, uh, Abraham Lincoln, the founder of the Republican uh, Party. Um, and those were momentous times. I really think that we live in momentous times as well. And as Jim said, you know, we have uh, 435 legislative directors uh, on Capitol Hill, and the role that you play in these momentous times is critical, and sometimes we don't, you know, we don't see that at the moment, and I just want to share with you, I think this is one of those moments. Now, we had a great year, obviously, in, uh, in November in 2010, winning control of the uh, House of Representatives, 63-seat gain, gaining uh, governorships and six Senate seats, and 290, uh, by the way, uh, uh, state house seats flipped. Uh, the most uh, in any election in the history of our two-party system uh, in the state legislatures uh, this year. Really momentous shift and we won 21 uh, house chambers. I chair the Republican State Leadership Committee. We were very involved in that and long term that's going to have a big impact including on redistricting here. But I've traveled a little bit of a different path. Uh, I'm kind of interested in the state politics. Uh, as was uh, mentioned by Annette, I chaired Bob McDonald's campaign for governor here in Virginia. Uh, after I left being chairman of the Republican National Committee, I went on to become, uh, to run for and win uh, as chairman of the Republican Party of Virginia. 
Uh, it's not the normal career path to go from national party chairman to state party chairman, but I thought if I got that right, I could be precinct captain someday. <laughs> Just keep going. But I think the states are really important and are a great model for all of you to look to, I think, in terms of forming policy uh, at the federal level. And uh, one example here in Virginia, uh, where Governor McDonald uh, faced the largest budget deficit in uh, Virginia history. Uh, I'm sure there are other fellow Virginians here, Susan McGill, a, strong, a proud Virginian. You know, we, uh, that's a long history in Virginia. We pride ourselves in having the longest continuous serving elected legislative body in all of North America. Uh, the the uh, Virginia General Assembly and the House of Delegates there, which began as the House of Burgesses. So to have the largest deficit in Virginia history is a big statement. And Governor McDonnell and Republicans in the uh, General Assembly led the way and balanced the budget in Virginia without raising taxes, just as he promised to do in his campaign. If you look in New Jersey, Governor Christie and what he's doing there in terms of being the leading edge, I think, of trying to get the right balance in terms of uh, government employee unions and public sector uh, union employees and our state budgets and, and balancing that. I've never seen an environment where it's more conducive uh, and frankly politically as risky to be seen not willing to cut spending as it is to cut spending. And that's what we see today and that's one of the things I want to talk with you about a little bit is the, uh, you know, the nature of the environment and how it translates into policy and how that's going to translate into uh, federal elections. And in particular, as I say, the most significant election I think in my lifetime is going to be in 2012. Now, I said that in 2004 when I was RNC chairman, and I meant it then, uh, but I mean it now as well. In 2004, the issue of terrorism and winning the war on terror and the policies for that, uh, I think, made it a critically important election. Uh, but today uh, and now, in 2012, it is going to be a true watershed election, and the United States of America is going to choose to continue down this path that's been started for us with massive government intervention in our, our economy, uh, more control over the private sector, decisions being made in Washington, supplanting the decisions made in the marketplace by individuals, free individuals, or we're going to stay true to uh, a spirit of democratic capitalism and in a system uh, that has served us very well uh, for more than 200 years. Uh, and what you do in your jobs between now and next November are going to play a critical role in the outcome of that election. And I believe good policy is good politics, uh, but we need to be conscious of it. Uh, I was not a chief of staff or a legislative director on Capitol Hill. I was a press secretary. Many of you know my wife, Kathy. She was a chief of staff when we got married. Everybody should marry up, right? And uh, she, uh, uh, but I was also the policy and communications director for the House Republican Conference when we did the contract with America and policy and communications director for uh, Dick Armey when he was the majority leader because I believe that policy and communications and messaging are integrally in intertwined and we have to approach it that way. And uh, so how we go about talking about reducing spending and lowering the burden of taxes, uh, cutting back regulations, making sure we do what needs to be done to repeal and replace the health care bill is critically important and will have a big impact on whether or not uh, in 2012 we're able to build on the gains that we saw in this election year or not. And so let me uh, go to a couple of uh, things in terms of policy that I think are, are important, especially in the areas of spending and debt, health care, energy, and immigration. I want to cite a couple of uh, data points uh, for you on this. Uh, I uh, founded a group called Resurgent Republic, and I want to encourage everyone to familiarize yourselves with Resurgent Republic. It's an easy website, resurgentrepublic.com. 
started it with Whit Ayers, who's one of the best pollsters in the, in the party, uh, and Leslie Sanchez, who's a good Republican strategist and has a, a particular insight into the uh, uh, Hispanic vote, which is critically important to us. And we started as a counterbalance to Democracy Corps, uh, which uh, uh, Stan Greenberg and James Carville on the, on the uh, left had started to, to provide great information and data and focus group results on how to talk about the issues that are important in the public policy debate in Washington today. We just completed a couple of rounds of uh, focus groups and a uh, quantitative uh, survey. Uh, if you go on the website, you'll see the, uh, the uh, dial test that we did for President Obama's State of the Union and Paul Ryan's uh, Republican response. Very interesting. What you'll see there is that independents are tracking with Republicans throughout, both the, in, the, uh, in the President's State of the Union and in the Republican response. That closeness and that proximity of independent voters with core Republican voters is, has been the key to our success, obviously, over the past two years. The drift away from independents from President Obama, the Democrats toward Republicans is what resulted in our control of the House of Representatives today, and we need to keep them. Uh, I would say I think uh, the Ripon Society plays an important role in this regard in terms of your uh, closeness and proximity uh, for centrist policies, as Jim said, and, and uh, have a pretty good ear for where the independents are. And the Resurgent Republic keeps a very close eye on the independents. We were the first to identify their drift away from uh, President Obama uh, uh, in 2009. Uh, so what I would encourage you to, uh, to uh, check that out. But uh, right now, in terms, of, uh, in terms of where the voters are, they are with Republicans on the issues that are at the center of the debate today, in particular spending and the debt and health care. Uh, interestingly enough, 48%, uh, this was a survey done in January, nationwide survey, 48% of voters, top of mind response, most important issue, not surprisingly, the economy. That's pretty remarkable to have nearly half the country volunteer uh, the same response to what is, what is your most pressing uh, concern, but it tells you uh, the issue environment that we're in. Uh, Sixty percent of them say that President Obama is at least somewhat responsible uh, for the economy, which is uh, a significant move and obviously fed into the election of last year. And when a majority of Republicans and independents together believe that the government is uh, trying to do too much, too many things, uh, then it can do well, and that would be better left to the private sector. By uh, Sixty-nine percent of Republicans believe that, fifty-three percent of independents believe that. Two to one support. Uh, spending reductions to reduce the deficit versus spending increases to help the economic recovery. On health care, 56 to 39 percent oppose the individual mandate. 52 percent to 32 percent, uh, 36 percent support uh, reforming medical liability to bring down the cost of uh, health care uh, by weeding out uh, extraneous and frivolous lawsuits. 52 to 41 percent oppose taxpayer funding uh, for abortion. So in terms of where the independents are uh, and where the majority are, they are right now with uh, most Republicans on most issues. Uh, it's really important that we keep them there and how we talk about these issues is important. One of the things I said in terms of McDonald's campaign, Bob McDonald was such a good uh, candidate for governor uh, because he would finish the sentence. And too often on the Republican side, we're talking amongst ourselves and we say, we're, you know, we just want to cut taxes. And we assume that everybody knows why we want to cut taxes. We want to cut spending, and we assume they know why we want to cut spending. We have to finish the sentence. We want to cut taxes because we know that if people have more money to invest in, their, uh, in the private sector economy, that will create jobs. If they have more money to spend for themselves and their family, it will be more efficiently spent. Uh, that at a time we want to cut spending because at a time when American families are belt tightening their belts, we need to tighten the belt uh, in Washington, D.C. 
and too much government spending, too much government intervention in the economy is a drag on job creation and kills jobs. So that's very important in terms of how we talk about the policies. Don't assume, especially those voters in the uh, middle, know why we're saying what we're saying and, and what the impact is. So I think in terms of spending, debt, health care, energy policy, majority of voters uh, uh, nationwide support uh, increasing uh, production and exploration of domestic uh, energy, including uh, here offshore uh, off Virginia. Uh, I would say our friends on the, on the left, they love uh, coal and oil and gas too. Uh, they just love it when it's below the ground, not above it. And uh, you know, we need to be talking about the impact of that on, on prices and the cost of energy, likely to see prices continue to rise at the gas pump. Uh, and this is an opportunity for us to make the case uh, for our policies. The last policy I'll touch on, I'm going to go to Q&A, and I'm going to trim my remarks back just a, a little bit to help you get on uh, schedule, stay on schedule here. But uh, immigration policy, very important. And uh, one of the things that uh, I think we have to be uh, most thoughtful about in terms of our communication strategy uh, and our policy, uh, because we favor welcoming legal immigrants uh, into this country uh, and, and believe that's a, a good thing. But sometimes that policy uh, gets lost uh, because we're so busy talking about keeping the illegal immigrants out. Uh, and the fact is, uh, you know, people who come to this country legally contribute to our society, contribute to our economy, contribute to our culture, uh, and we have uh, not only a right but an obligation to secure our borders, uh, but also to welcome people into, the, uh, into our country and into our party, I would argue, as a Republican. Now, I say that not you know, based on any theory. I know this to, to uh, be a fact. My, my father is an Irish immigrant. He came here from uh, Donegal, Ireland at the age of nine, was processed through Ellis Island, uh, grew up in North Philadelphia in some pretty tough neighborhoods, worked as a janitor. He was uh, fought for his adopted country uh, in World War II, uh, won uh, two Purple Hearts, Bronze Star, Bronze Star with Oak Leaf Cluster, and a Silver Star. Uh, was a small business owner. He and my mother had a, had a mom and pop grocery store and uh, then he lived every Irishman's dream. He bought his own bar, and he's a great American. So, you know, we need to send that signal to folks that we recognize that and we welcome folks. The, the reason it's so important politically, I think, is because we have to recognize uh, that the Hispanic vote is critically important to the uh, success of the, our being a majority party uh, going forward. I'll give you a, just a couple of quick data points. Uh, in 2000, uh, President Bush... Uh, and, and the 2000 election, as we all remember, some of us more vividly than others, was a 50-50 tie uh, and a deadlock, and uh, uh, George W. Bush got 55% of white voters in that election. In 2008, uh, John McCain, the Republican nominee, got 55% of white voters in that election and lost by seven percentage points. And if the Republican nominee in 2020, only three cycles away, uh, gets the same percentage, of the Hispanic vote and the African-American vote and the Asian-American uh, Pacific Islander vote as John McCain got in 2008, the Republican nominee will lose by 14 percentage points. Uh, we'll be in a situation where Florida won't be a swing state, Texas will be a swing state. And that's a tough road to hoe in the Electoral College. So I just, I, I counsel that. There's one warning uh, out there for us that I think may be masked by the, by the massive gains we made in this last election, and that is a demographic challenge before us, that if we're not thoughtful about as a party, and we're not thoughtful about as we talk about policies, uh, will be a real long-term challenge for us. But in the immediate term, uh, we are very fortunate to be in a, in a position where uh, we are where the majority of Americans are in our policies and in our approach to uh, government. Uh, we are where they are when it comes to 
the debt and spending and government intervention in, our, in the economy. They, I think most Americans understand that we are, uh, you know, uh, better off to have strong national security and to, uh, that apology tours are not going to make us safer as a country and are not going to make the world more stable. Uh, so we have a real opportunity here to build on the majorities that we gained, uh, including, by the way, adding to the House majority with a Senate majority uh, in 2012, which I think is very likely. Uh, as well as uh, winning back control of the, of the White House. Uh, and again, I'll just close by saying uh, what you uh, all do in this room over the next two years will play a very central role, not only in the future of the country and the direction of our economy because of the policies, uh, but it will play a very critical role in terms of uh, our nominee's ability to, to uh, win the White House in 2012. So thanks for letting me be with you this morning. I'm anxious to take in your questions and uh, appreciate your coming out here to, uh, to Mount Vernon. Thank you. Questions or advice? Yeah, Jerry. Uh, the policy politics connection, does it need to have, say, a voice to it also? It, it seems like there are many leaders of this party. <coughs> and, uh, how do we, what do we do? I mean, if the economy improves, maybe Obama gets president. Sure. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, uh, you know, if the, if the economy improves, his fortunes rise dramatically. It's hard to see him. Uh, you know, uh, getting re-election if unemployment, the unemployment rate is above uh, 8%. It dropped to 9% today. I don't know if anyone saw the, the uh, latest employment figures. Uh, I, I don't think, I think it would be hard for it to get below 8 between now and, uh, and November of 2012, but I'm not an economist and, and don't play one on TV. But I think they're going to have a, a hard time uh, given the pace of job creation they'll need in that regard. Uh, but to the point about the voices and, and uh, the messages, I'm for, you know, letting a thousand flowers bloom uh, between now and 2012. We will have a nominee by uh, probably the end of April of uh, next year. And it'll be a little longer for us than it has been the, the rules changes at the RNC. By the way, let me just say for the Ripon Society, you know, we have a new chairman of the Republican National Committee who's a uh, Wisconsinite uh, and a very strong chairman. I, I agreed to chair his transition there, and I just want to tell folks here uh, he is going to be a very strong chairman. I always say the only thing better than being uh, RNC chairman is being former RNC chairman, which I enjoy very much. Uh, but he's got a real challenge uh, there with, uh, you know, really about $23 million worth of debt. But he is off to a stellar start, hiring great staff. And uh, so for the Ripon Society, having a Wisconsinite in the uh, RNC chair is a good thing. But my point is that the process is stretched out uh, this time because of the rules changes at the RNC. And it's not, the, the primaries aren't going to go off like a string of firecrackers like they often do. It's going to be a little bit more pacing to it, and there's proportional voting in the early primaries, which will keep uh, candidates alive longer in the uh, process. And I think that's a good thing for us. I think a big competitive field uh, is a good thing for us. Uh, the more that uh, vote, uh, that uh, uh, potential nominees are bringing voters to the Iowa caucuses, getting them into the New Hampshire primary, getting them into the Nevada caucuses, uh, Michigan uh, primary. Those are all swing states, and the more folks they get involved in the primary, the more likely they'll stay in the general. And then in terms of our own folks, congressional leaders, we have, uh, I have to say, I think that uh, John Boehner, Mitch McConnell, they have been spot on from the get-go in terms of the tone that they have brought, a tone of humility. Uh, there was no, on election night, no spiking the ball in the end zone, a seriousness that came right away. Uh, there's not been a uh, harsh rhetoric. There's been thoughtful rhetoric, I think, in terms of the way we're talking about policies. And then, 
you know, some of our younger folks starting to emerge. Paul Ryan, I thought, did a great job delivering the State of the Union response. Uh, that's a tough task, as we all know. I was with Bob McDonald when he did the, uh, the Republican response from the uh, floor of the General Assembly in Richmond. That's a huge advantage to be a governor and be able to build an audience to respond to your remarks in the same way in a smaller setting, obviously in a much shorter than the president. But for, for Paul to do, you know, nine minutes into camera like that and, and very effectively, I thought, is, again, if you check out the website and see, he kept, he kept viewers with him. Uh, and I thought that was really impressive. So I think the more people that emerge, the better for us. We've got some new faces in the party now that are hugely helpful, I think, in terms of some of the things I was just talking about. Marco Rubio in the, uh, in the Senate, Jamie Herrera in the House, uh, uh, Brian Sandoval and uh, Susana Martinez as governors of critical swing states. Uh, so we have an opportunity here to put forward some fresh faces that will be really good for us. But at the end of the day, we'll have a nominee. Uh, and, and that nominee uh, in 2012 will be the face and the voice of the party. Uh, and in the meantime, I think what, what we have to do is just be careful to make sure that we lay the ground for that nominee to come in and not have to dig out of a hole, uh, but to build on, uh, on the messaging and the, and the uh, policy successes that those of you in this room are going to contribute to. Yes. From, from what districts? Well, I think uh, uh, in terms of members who are elected, and, and one of the things you, you find in, a, in an election like this, you know, you, you get wins in, in seats you weren't expecting. Uh, when I was with Haley Barber in, in 1994 at the RNC working for uh, then Chairman uh, Barber, and we had the big wins in 54 seats, less than, in, than now, but uh, he would refer to some uh, uh, members of the House of Representatives as Congressman Flotsam and Congressman Jetsam, uh, who washed up on the beach in the uh, big wave. Uh, but, the, uh, you know, you end up in a, uh, you know, behind enemy lines a lot. If you, when, you, when you win 63 seats, you're, you're picking up seats that, you know, you're behind enemy lines. And so I think that uh, it's very important, a couple of points in terms of protecting those seats. Uh, one is constituent service and being responsive and being seen in the district is first and foremost. Uh, the second is, uh, you know, uh, representing your district. But at the same time, you know, members also ran on principles that they believe in and got elected and they represent uh, and, and may have to cast some votes that, that are going to be tough uh, back in those districts. But I think if they're explained thoughtfully, like I say, the majority of independents and a lot of soft Democrats are where we are on what needs to be done in terms of the policies uh, of the country. But I, I think when you're in those swing districts, uh, your, you know, how you talk about the policies matters a lot. I think it matters a lot everywhere, uh, but in particular in those swing districts. So uh, I think tending to the knitting back home, making sure that, uh, you know, the Social Security checks and the Veterans Affairs, which is where I started in, uh, you know, in Bradenton, Florida. I worked for a Democrat who switched parties. I was, you know, a party switcher myself. I was a Democrat. I'm, you know, mentioned my, the son of Irish immigrant. My mother's Irish, uh, Catholic, born in New Jersey in 1961, the year John F. Kennedy was sworn in as president, they all but stamped Democrat on my birth certificate. And, uh, and I switched in, 80, in uh, 84 and when, when uh, Andy Ireland switched uh, and ran with Ronald Reagan. And he had a Democratic-leaning district, too, but he even switched parties and ran as a Republican. You can do it, uh, but it, it really requires, uh, you know, time and a half in terms of, of uh, paying attention back home. But it's a great question. Thank you. Yes.
Yeah. Well, and I think Rick, that gets back too to the you know being in the district. I think listening to folks back home and, and giving them the opportunity to, to come forward with ideas. One of the things I think that's most important with the new Republican majority and the new leadership and, and uh, Speaker Boehner is the commitment to a more open process. And uh, so hopefully there will be opportunities to push and get momentum behind uh, you know a bill or a new idea or a new policy idea, even for freshman members, even for freshman members in the minority. When I worked for Dick Armey, uh, you know, he was in the, in the minority when we passed the base closing bill uh, uh, through the House of Representatives under a Democratic majority. The process was more open back then. Uh, the fact is it got increasingly closed under Jim Wright and then, and then Foley. We opened it up a little bit in 94, but then the truth is we shut it down too on the Republican side. And I think opening up the process to allow people to come in, allow them to offer amendments, uh, will we'll bring people together and I think it will drain a lot of the poison out of the well of the House, literally, uh, and, and there will be amendments that pass. I predict to you there will be amendments that pass with a majority of Democrats voting for it and maybe 30 or 40 Republicans, which we saw the last time I think we saw that in a significant way was probably in 1996 when a lot of uh, Republican members of the House who are members of the Ripon Society voted for an increase in the minimum wage bill, which saved their seats. So a majority of Republicans voted against hiking the minimum wage, and about 30, I think it was, John, uh, voted for it. And those 30 went home and said, by the way, I bucked my own leadership. Huh? 80. Yeah, right. Once the dam broke. Uh, but, you know, that was a, that was a, a pyrrhic victory for, for the unions and the left to get that victory on the floor of the, of the House, but it was, you know, it was pyrrhic because it ended up re-electing a lot of uh, Republicans in the Northeast and in the Great Lakes and out in California. Uh, so my point is I think there will be opportunities here for legislative entrepreneurs to work across the aisle, to bring new ideas into the process, to offer them in committee because the committees are going to regular order now. As a, as a person who came up through the ranks of the House and considers himself a House guy, uh, this is fantastic. And there's going to be periods where there's immense frustration, by the way. There'll be immense frustration from some of the folks here uh, from, who you know, work for corporate America on behalf of ideas. They're going to want to shut down the rules and say, don't even allow this amendment. Well, you're going to have to work and get 218 votes, and that's a good thing for the process. So uh, that's the answer, I think, is you know, there's going to be an opportunity in an open process to bring ideas forward and work across the aisle, build coalitions in support of the idea, and, and uh, you know, try to get a vote on it. Yes? Yeah, it's hard, uh, and, but I think it's, it's imperative. Uh, we have to tie everything back to jobs. We have to repeal the health care uh, bill because it's going to result in it's a job-killing health care bill, as we've been doing. Uh, by the way, that gets reinforced every time you see these unions or companies going on bended knee uh, to the uh, Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Medicare and Medicaid to get a waiver from it so that they don't have to lay people off. Uh, it's pretty evident there when, when you have companies coming out and saying we're, you know, we have to ratchet back uh, and lay people off because of the mandate. 
so we have to tie everything back to jobs, including the spending, by the way. You know, the, the massive government intervention in our economy and this spending uh, and debt is a drag on our economy, and, and we need to free up uh, our economy for, for uh, innovation and job creation. So it's easy to get distracted, easy to get, you know, pulled off of, uh, of the message. We saw that with the White House, and we should learn from their mistakes. Uh, you know, they moved away from, uh, from a jobs message and didn't get on it until it was way too late, and we need to, uh, to stay on it. At the same time, we've got some things we've got to do that are, that are you know, imperative relative to uh, the debt and spending and health care, but, but we can, I think, stay inside that. Uh, and and the media will always try to, you know, to distract us. I used to joke when I was a, a press secretary, I don't believe in reincarnation, but if I did, I'd want to come back as a Democrat press secretary. That's a good life. <laughs> You say it, and they write it. There's no follow-up question. It's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> but we now have the capacity to communicate directly with our voters in a way that we really didn't have, you know, when, when we did the contract with America and uh, to get our message out. And we have to take advantage of that and maximize that and be our own media, essentially. Uh, and in that regard, we've got to keep talking about jobs. I want to say one thing about kind of this, you know, the Civil War. This is my third Civil War in the Republican Party that I've been through personally. I mentioned in 84 I came into the Republican Party as, a, as an ethnic Catholic Democrat for Ronald Reagan. And that was going on all over the country. And there, some of us who are old enough to remember this, remember the stories of, oh, the Civil War in the Republican Party between the cultural conservatives and the country club Republicans. And I would fall into the, you know, the cultural conservative, a lot of people driven by uh, the life issue, uh, but also just kind of didn't, they didn't connect with Walter Mondale, they connected with Ronald Reagan, that's how I felt. And um, there was this talk of a civil war in, in 1984 inside the Republican Party because of this infusion of kind of blue-collar ethnic Democrats coming into the Republican Party. And we won, you know, Ronald Reagan won 49 states. Uh, and then after the 92 election in Perot, uh, people, you know, you may remember there were stories of the Perotistas, the Perot voters, you know, coming into the Republican Party and challenging the establishment and taking over certain county parties, which they did in a number of county parties. And there was this big story about the Republican Civil War that was going on. And in 1994, we won control of the U.S. House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. Uh, and now we just saw, you know, we're seeing it in this past year, and, and we'll continue to see it, the Tea Party and, and the friction and the tension uh, in the Republican Party. And I grant you there is. Uh, in each one of those instances, by the way, there was tension and there was friction because when you're growing as a party, that's what's going to happen. But growing pains are better than shrinking pains. We just went through four years of shrinking pains and that stunk. This is, you know, I can live with this tension uh, and this friction. This is the right problem to have. And, and the fact is they're bringing new energy, these two party voters coming into the party and they're shaking us up a little bit and we deserve to be shaken up a little bit. And at the end of the day, you know, we'll look back on this period of time and say, oh yeah, we won 63 seats in the House and governorships and record number of state legislators and then we went on to win the White House uh, because of that tension and that friction and that civil war uh, that was going on in the Republican Party. So we need to embrace this and we need to learn from it. We need to listen. Uh, we need to help uh, bring these folks into the party. We're much better off uh, with Tea Party voters voting in Republican Party primaries than voting for a third party Tea Party candidate in the general election. And, and so, uh, you know, this is, like I say, the right problem, uh, uh, but I think we have to get that, that messaging right. One more, I think, time for? One more question, if there is one? Yes, in the back.
Uh, I think it's a great idea, and, and again, I'm going to put a plug in for uh, Resurgent Republic. Uh, I don't know how many folks saw at the end of the election, the uh, end of the campaign, the the attack ad about the you know the foreign money going into the uh, the DNC ran with against the Chamber of Commerce and Karl Rove and me, and I, apparently I was uh, uh, stealing a woman's purse in a parking lot, and uh, <laughs> but you know the the. Uh, these groups uh, are, play a very important role and a very helpful role in the process. And again, Resurgent Republic is where you can see some of this data. The strongest response Paul Ryan got in, the, uh, in his State of the Union response uh, and where the spike was was when he said, hold us accountable. And I think that's a great idea to go back in the spring and say, I'm here for my accountability uh, report and, and checkup and just want to let you know here's what we've done. Here's what we said we would do and here's what we're doing. I think it's also important, too, because we have to manage expectations. Uh, a lot of people, you know, think, well, that's great. In November, Republicans took over Washington. Well, we didn't. We took over the House. Democrats are still in control of the Senate and, and the White House, and the President has the veto pen and regulatory authority. And the more we can kind of reinforce that and keep the public's perceptions of what can be done by Republicans in Washington versus, you know, uh, you know what they think can be done, uh, I think is really important. But I, I think that's a great idea to get back and from time to time uh, hold yourselves accountable, give your constituents a chance to, to hold your uh, members accountable too. Thank you very much. Have a great uh, conference. It looks like a great agenda, and thank you for letting me be part of it. Appreciate it very much.